Worship, I'll ask you to stand again and sing. Turn to John chapter 3, and we'll continue our walk through the book of John. Uh, sometimes it seems like a snail's pace, but compared to others who have spent years and years, uh, we're going through quite quickly. We'll begin reading in John uh, 3, verse 14, <clears throat> continuing. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Last week we addressed Jesus' encounter with the Pharisee and ruler of the Jews um, and a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. Um, after seeing miracles, he, like many others, believed in Jesus as a teacher, as a miracle worker, and he made the confession that he was uh, sent from God and that God was with him, for no man could do these miracles uh, except God be with him. Of course, in their history, and Nicodemus is in history, there were many who had come before uh, who had done miracles, Elijah and Elisha, uh, just to name a few. Uh, but we also said that this is not enough. Uh, perhaps as important as this acknowledgement is, it was not enough for Nicodemus and it's not enough for us. Jesus made it clear that to see the kingdom of God, one must be born from, a uh, from above. Perhaps you've heard it taught uh, or you read from another translation. Some translations write born from above. Not born again, but born from above. We spent some time pointing to the fact that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit and not the spirit of the will of man that men receive life. We tried to demonstrate from Ezekiel 36 and 37 that the totality of the work of regeneration lies solely on the will and the power of the Holy Spirit. As a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus should have known these passages and they should have informed him as to what being born or being born from above means. This week we're going to continue and we'll pick up again that one text that we finished with last week from verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Of all the Old Testament texts Jesus could have chosen in his dialogue, he settled on this one. In one sentence, he summarized, I think, the story of redemption. And in choosing this particular story, he did so in a most poignant and graphic way. When I was at Bob Jones, they had an auditorium that was filled with wonderful paintings, and I can see one today. On, the, on one wall, uh, is, it would have covered this, this whole area, was this story of the fiery serpent, and it was so graphic. I mean, it, for a child, it would have been horrifying. 
you see these people squirming and being bitten by snakes. And if you're as afraid of snakes as I am, you can see why this memory has, has stuck with me. But we're going to see why this is so important and why it's so graphic. I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to Numbers 21, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Numbers 21 and verse 1. This is the record or the account of that story. We read it in our call to worship, and we'll repeat it again here. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of the Atharim, he fought against Israel, and he took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses, he made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I think this story of redemption, this is a story of redemption basically in a sentence where he says, as the serpent was raised, so must the Son of Man be raised. And oh, those who believe in him will receive eternal life. I say the people acknowledged without appreciation in this story the fact that they had been enslaved by Egypt. They forgot too soon that God had redeemed them and delivered them from slavery. Even in this story, after he delivered them, they became impatient and complained against God. The gospel story, in brief, is that humanity is enslaved by sin and its condemnation. That's a word that will be repeated in our text this morning. It is a story of how God sent his son. As John put it in chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look upon, believe in this Lamb of God. In this story, we have Israel's shallow commitment. They vowed a vow. Then we have Israel's Savior's care. He heeded their prayers. But then we have Israel's sinful complaining. And the people became impatient on the way, and they grumbled against, they murmured against uh, the God of Israel who had delivered him and Moses his serpent. Then we have Israel's swift condemnation. What I mean by condemnation, God judged them, and he judged them with fiery serpents that made them sick and caused them to die. 
Then we have Israel's sin confessed. What is the solution for sin of complaining and, and sin and uh, the threat of condemnation? It's, it's confession. They say, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take the serpents from us. We might add to that prayer as believers, Lord, take the sin of complaining from us. Not just the condemnation, but take the sin from us. On Wednesday nights, we have been going through Romans 8, and that's a wonderful text. For there is therefore no condemnation to those in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the chapter, it talks about who is it to condemn? Who is it to bring a, an accusation? For God has justified. Jesus has died and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then that finish that wonderful chapter. We're going to be talking about love in a minute. There is no separation from the love of God. Israel's Savior's compassion, he provided a way of redemption. He provided a way of salvation from the condemnation uh, as demonstrated in these serpents. Jesus has moved from the new birth by the Spirit to the consequence of the new birth. It is moving from condemnation to eternal life. It is moving from unbelief to belief. Just as the dying Israelites had to look to the fiery serpents to live, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, so now men must look to the Son of Man who will be lifted up for eternal life. Of course, we know that the lifting up of Jesus was pointing to his crucifixion for sins. And all would need to look to him for salvation. For all who would believe in him. In 1815, a tormented young man found shelter from a ferocious snowstorm in a tiny chapel down a back street in London. In his autobiography, he described himself that night as he entered into this chapel. And I quote, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. On this providential night, he did not escape only from the fierceness of the snowstorm. He escaped from his torment. Though he had been christened, raised in the church, dedicated himself to Bible reading and prayer, he had not found peace. This night, I say providentially he entered, on this night, the pastor was not there and a layman, some, a layman was filling the pulpit an unlettered layman. He seemed to have no particular oratory flair or profound theological insights. In fact, according to the account of the young man, and I quote him again, he had, had, he had not much to say. Thank God for that compelled him to keep repeating his text. When he ran out of words, he'd just repeat his text. And there was, needed, and there was nothing else needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery, and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, look, look, young man, look now. And then I had this vision, not a vision of to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ is. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw what I believed. I no, I no longer, <laughs> excuse me. I no sooner saw whom I was to believe in 
that I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. The text substituted, the, sex, the text the preacher used was from Isaiah 45, 22. And here is the invitation. Here is the command. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. This young man, and perhaps maybe you've read his autobiography, uh, was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, some have called him, in England during the 1800s. To look here means to believe in, to rest in, to treasure, to look to no other source but to Jesus as the means of our forgiveness of sins, righteousness, sanctification, <clears throat> and adoption. Might I ask you, to what or to whom are you looking for salvation? Even those of us who have been born again and have looked to Jesus, we must keep our gaze and our focus on him. And so reading again, we see, read, And Mo, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. <clears throat> the word for in this verse builds on the thought that had come before. Looking unto Jesus for God sent his son, gave his son. D.A. Carson puts it this way, as the new birth, the acquisition of eternal life, has been grounded in the lifting up the climax of the son's mission to be lifted up. This is the reason he came into the world. It, this is itself grounded in the love of God. Where, where can we begin when we talk about the love of God? First, we can speak of the source of God's love. It is God himself. It has no origin other than his infinite person. John in his first letter tells us that God is love. Paul tells us in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It would be inaccurate to say that God loves because. God, or if we say that, is God loves because God loves. There is no other reason than his own person. It is wrong to pair, compare God's love with ours. And too often we do this. Our under, what we know, we, we know experientially, or we read things and we process it through our experiences and what our encounters in life. But our love is infinitely different from the love of God's. His is inherent and ours is a gift. It was created in us and given us as we were created in his own image. As image bearers, we have been created to love and commanded to love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Carson has written a book, and I would commend it to you. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Now, for most of us, we read that title and say, what could be difficult about the doctrine of the love of God? Love is the simplest thing to understand in the world, and yet in our own vernacular, there's a vast difference between I love my wife and I love my tractor. We use that word to cover a variety of experiences and expressions. 
as recipients of his love, perhaps we've never seen it as difficult but simple. We think of the Trinity as being difficult or the God-man, Jesus is both God and man, as being difficult. Yet, when we try to harmonize the love of God, or if we try to harmonize the love of God with his justice, his holy wrath, as we see them uh, in scriptures, we see these as contradictory to one another. We have a tendency either to ignore or deny his wrath and judgment on the one hand, or separate his love and his wrath. Some see the Old Testament God as a God of wrath and the New Testament Jesus as a God of love. But there's only one God. We've just recited from the Athanasian Creed and they're the same. And they're uh, in their being and they're in their, in their character. First, when we speak of love or the love of God, uh, we can speak of the objects of God's love, we must start with his first love, okay? If you, if you love, you have an object of a love, you, okay? We know that the Father loves the Son. For we read in John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. We know from Scripture that the Son loves the Father. For we read in John 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me. You remember there's... Command, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, I do what the Father has commanded me so that the world may know I love the Father. This removes the faulty concept that God created us out of some necessity. I've heard it said, in other words, he created us because he needed someone to love and someone to love him. Brothers and sisters from eternity past, each member of the Trinity loved each member of the Trinity the wonder is that God in his infinite love and wisdom was motivated by nothing but his own good pleasure to create us and give us the privilege of sharing in that triune love. Secondly, when we speak of the object of God's love, it's proper to think of God's love providentially loving all that he has made. You'll never see, I don't think in scripture, where it says he loves the sparrows or he loves the lilies of the field, or he loves this, or he loves that. But we do know that providentially, it says, the scriptures tells us, he feeds the sparrows, and he clothes the lilies of the field. When he created the earth, he pronounced it good. If God is love, his act of creation has to be a loving act. It was only after the rebellion of man that the creation was subjected to futility. Paul tells us in Romans 8, that this creation is groaning, it's a groaning creation, and will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we have God's providential love over his creation and all that he's made. Thirdly, when we speak of God's, the object of God's love, we can speak of his particular, particular, effective, selecting love towards his elect. This can be speaking of Israel, the church, or individuals. To Israel, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number 
than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all. But it is because the Lord loves you. Just simply, there's that word, because. Because he loves you and has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. To the church we read, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And to individuals we, we read that to those who he has set his love on as individuals and to the church made up of individuals. This love is not for the lovely, but for the unlovely. It's not for the deserving, but for the undeserving. It's not for the strong, but for the weak. It was for his enemies. It's not for the sinless, but for sinners. For we read in Romans 5, for scarcely, for one will scarcely die for a righteous man or person, though perhaps for a good person would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Finally, we can speak of the object of God's love in the fact or, or look at his salvific stance towards the fallen world. For God, in our text, for God so loved the world. Some take this to mean, trying to make scriptures fit together in, in their minds, take this to mean the world of the elect. But John does not speak of the world in terms of the elect any other place. But he speaks of the world basically at loss and at odds with God. <clears throat> when John speaks of the world, he is speaking inclusively, including the world system and those that carry it out. This text that God so loved the world, this, is in, this conflict comes in when we read in other places that we are not to love the world or the things of the world. And yet we're to love our enemies. So there is this tension between what are we to do or are we not? And, and so we try to harmonize election and things in God's love for the world. God loves his creation. He says, go ye into all the world and make disciples. He has a concern and a compassion for a lost and dying world. In, verse, in John 17, uh, in John's writings, the disciples were considered at one time part of the world. In verse chapter 15 and 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul, uh, he, again, Jesus himself says in his prayer in chapter 17, he's returning to the Father. He's leaving his apostles in the world. He asked the Father to keep them. He says, don't take them out of the world, but keep them in the world. He prays not only for the apostles, but those who would come to faith and be set apart from the world through their testimony. In, chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we were once by nature, once by nature, the children of wrath like the rest of humanity. Paul tells us, <clears throat> the excuse me, the closest that I can come to harmonizing this is the, because I'd never heard it before I got in reform circles, is the idea of common grace. Uh, not saving grace, not electing grace, but God's common grace. And I, I would not use the term his common love because there's nothing common about the love of God. But that God loves in a 
in a broader way than perhaps we do at times. But not only can we speak of the source of God's love or the objects of God's love, we can also speak of the measure of God's love. The value of God's love is measured not in that he gave, but it's in the value of what he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was not that he gave one of a thousand sons, but he gave his only son. I can only think uh, as I was preparing of the commendation that God gave to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two twelve, And he says to Abraham, he says, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Peter tells us that we were not redeemed with perishable or corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. I would encourage you to Google R.C. Sproul's sermon on the text uh, in 1 Peter where he talks about the precious love. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful sermon. I'll give you just part of it. He, uses by, he talks about what makes a thing or a gem precious. And he goes back to when he bought a diamond ring for his wife. And he, he went to a jeweler up in New York. He wanted to get the best you could get. He wanted to buy something precious for his precious. And so he went to the jeweler and he says, what makes and gives value to the gem? One is its perfection. There are no flaws or you know, nothing is flawless in this. But the, its value increases when there are no flaws in it. It's clarity. And then what makes it precious is its uniqueness. And he draws the conclusion that the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is unique. Um, it is unique because he is perfect in all of his ways. I hope we can grasp that this morning. God in his love is not like those in the book of Malachi who despise the name of the Lord as demonstrated in their offering of the blind and the lame and the sick animals. He gave, he gave the best heaven could offer. So we look not only at the source of God's love, the objects of God's love, the values of God's love, but we can look this morning at what his love accomplished for those who believe in him, the promise is nothing less than eternal life with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There are two distinct destinies presented here, perishing, damnation, and eternal life. These destinies are determined by unbelief, the failure to look to the Son of Man for salvation, <clears throat> And, excuse me, the unbelief, not looking to the Son of Man, and belief, looking to the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps I would be remiss if I didn't address the elephant in the room. Maybe the elephant, I'm going to bring him in the room if he's not here. That this brings up uh, the debate, the age-old age long debate of the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. Some people, it says, whoever believes, and they have made it say, whosoever believes, 
and, and borrow from other scriptures, to preach that the determining factor is ourselves. God has done his part. He's made his presentation. Now it's up to us to believe in him. This in itself, this text does not address this ongoing debate over free will. I'm just briefly give you two books that I've read that speak to this. Luther has written a book, or there's a, I have a book on my shelf called The Bondage of the Will. Basically, it accurately states that those who have not been born of the Spirit, who are in their own fleshly wills, are governed by the sin that dominates and enslaves them. On the other hand, Jonathan Edwards has a book, deals with the same subject, and yet it has the opposite title. It's entitled Freedom of the Will. If I understand him correctly, he states that our wills freely choose and act upon our greatest desires. We choose what we love. It was a sermon. Chuck preached that sermon, right? We serve what we worship, or we serve whom we love. And this is what uh, Edwards is saying, in the unregenerate state, our hearts are bent towards the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There, the, the New Testament speaks in terms of bondage, of slavery, of blindness and lameness. All of the physical ailments that are thrust upon us represent what it means to be captured and contained in sin. The promise is deliverance through the new birth. I think that we may correctly say that God in his love gave his only son to save all the world that believes in him. We can safely assert that indeed has, that he has, is, and will give eternal life to those who believe in him. Those in the past, those of us present, and those of yet to come. Certainly Jews, the Jews of his day, understood that God loved them. They could go back to Deuteronomy, and we read it. But now they are to see that God loves to the, to his love is extended to the whole world. Though they should have seen it in the promise to Abraham. In you, all the world will be blessed. Picking up on the next verse, so what are we to make of John 17? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Doesn't this clearly, doesn't this verse clearly state that God's purpose for sending his son was not for the purpose of condemnation, but salvation and salvation of the world? I think if we continue reading, we get a clarification in verse 18. For we read, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not, he has not yet believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here we move from a holistic to a particular treatment of different individuals. There are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. There are those who are condemned already by their unbelief. And there are those who will not perish because they believe and have looked to the Son of God. So what is the condemnation? I think we find it in the next verse. What is the judgment? If you read in the ESV, it says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather 
than the light because their works were evil. The uh, King James, it uses the same root uh, for judgment and condemnation. Uh, but the King James reads it that way. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. For everyone, continue in verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here we have, or here we can look back to the first chapter where we are told, remember it was a couple weeks, months back, uh, we read in the first chapter, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the condemnation is that men in their unregenerate state hate the light. They hate Jesus. Now, that's a, that's a hard thing to say, but they reject him. Uh, they are indifferent to him. And if you'd have been in the first century, you would have seen those who crucified him. They hated him. We're, we, we would, apart from the grace of God, be no different. They hate him because he is the son of righteousness. And they love the world of darkness, delusion, and lives, which exposes their sin. He exposes their sin in which they are so much in love. On the other hand, there are those who have been drawn to the truth. And do what is true. They love the light. They love Jesus because it is clearly seen that the works of righteousness that they do are carried out in God. And we refer oftentimes to Isaiah, our righteousnesses are filthy rags. That is a comparative statement. It's comparative compared to the righteousness of Christ. Yes, anything and everything we do is as a filthy rag. But I'll push back in this way. When the Holy Spirit and when the Lord Jesus Christ works through us, it is His work that demonstrates to the glory of God that men have been changed, who live no longer for sin and death, and in death, but live for Him. Their desire is to glorify God through the work of love and grace that He has done in them. May that be our desire this morning, that God would so gracious, us, that God who loved us and has sent his son for us, that he would become our most prized treasure. He would be the focus and the center of our lives. And then in love of him, that it would change our lives so that we are different. Not just here, and not just here, but in everything we do and say. For what reason? To the praise of his glory. Our gracious God and Father, we pray now that you would seal these things up into our heart. We thank you for your word and its creative power. We pray even now that it might create in us a greater love for you, a heart that worships you, treasures you, adores you. And out of that love and adoration and doxology, Lord, that it would cause us to walk in your way by your spirit. We ask these things again to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name.